0: The year, 1842. The place, Afghanistan. The British are about to learn a hard lesson. It's easy to get an army into Afghanistan, but it's not so easy to get that army out. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Unknown Soldiers, episode one, Graveyard of Empires. I'm your host, James Hauser, and I'm super happy that you are here. Hope you guys are having a fantastic day. So I got a really interesting story for you guys today. The First Anglo-Afghan War of 1839 to 1842. Most of my American listeners, which is probably all of you right now, might have some inkling that once upon a time, the British Empire got involved in an invasion of Afghanistan. But y'all might not know what happened or how it all went down. Well, you stick around, you're going to hear all about it. A couple things I need to say. First, this is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean, the content is not. Second, all my sources will be posted on my website. So if you want to know where I got my information... That's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. But before we get going, if you want to know more about what, of what this podcast is about, or what my whole deal is, or even a little about who I am, I have an intro podcast on the feed right now. Episode Zero, as well as a website, UnknownSoldiersPodcast.com, so you can check that out if you like. If not, let's get into it. Our story today begins with a painting. In the 1870s, the British middle class had a new heroine of the hour, Elizabeth Thompson, Lady Butler. This young, pretty, well-born lady became famous for, of all things, battle paintings, You know, epic battles, cavalry charges, the melancholy aftermath, and all sorts of other military-themed depictions from recent British history. Despite never having actually seen war, because she was a noble lady in Victorian England, of course, she somehow managed to capture both its appeal and its brutality. One particular painting from 1879 stands out. It was called Remnants of an Army. Unlike her usual fare, this one depicts a lone rider nearly falling out of his saddle from despair and fatigue, crossing a dusty plain to approach a desert fortress. Without already knowing what the painting is trying to depict, most observers today would have no frame of reference for this image. But for the British in the 19th century, it was an image they could not forget, no matter how much they might have wanted to. The lone rider is Dr. William Brydon, and the city is Jalalabad in the mountains of Afghanistan. Dr. Bryden was supposedly the only man to escape one of the greatest disasters in British military history. In the mountain passes behind him lay the ruins of an entire army destroyed by their own arrogance. The story of this expedition was well known at the time, so most Victorian observers would have known the subject and story of the painting as soon as they laid eyes on it. Lady Butler's painting was timely, because as she was putting oil to canvas, the British were going off on another invasion of Afghanistan. Some people never learn, but here I am saying that as an American, right? Still, though, I bet most people in Victorian England looked up at poor Dr. Bryden on that canvas and felt a chill go up their spines. If the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, what do we say about every world empire that tries for some reason, to invade Afghanistan. Our story today is the first Anglo-Afghan war. The first, but not the last time, that Britain decided that it was just a great idea to invade Afghanistan. We're going to talk about why this war happened, how the war went, and how the war ended. We're also going to talk about the men who fought, British, Indian, and Afghan, and the women who went along for the ride. The British tend to treat their imperial wars as like this heroic drama starring British officers and soldiers, but I'm James Hauser, and I give you both sides of the story. To get to the full scope of the First Anglo-Afghan War, we need to hear from the Afghans, too. Finally, I'll tell you why it's important. You're asking, why should I care? You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. Breaks. When I stop talking and you hear the music swell, it's time to pause, grab a drink, change the baby, do the thing you need to do. So, without further ado, grab your bayonet and your haversack, and let's go on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? We're going to Afghanistan, of course. But first, we need to make a quick detour to India. Alright, in the 1830s, Great Britain was the dominant power in India. See, Britain was a new kind of empire. Most empires have historically been based on military strength. Think of Rome, or China, or the Mongols. They would conquer territories with their powerful armies, sit back, and let the money roll in. The British did this in reverse, though. Instead of leading with armies and letting the money follow, the British led with money and let the armies follow. It was a highly cost-effective system that allowed them to take over existing political structures and use them as puppets. That's pretty much what they did to India, and that's what they would try and do to Afghanistan. The upshot is, by the 1830s, a few thousand white guys in the Honorable East India Company had become the virtual rulers of over 100 million people in India. The East India Company was a weird organism. It's kind of hard to explain. It was like a state corporation under control of its shareholders, but closely tied to the British government. In India, it literally was a government with its own standing army and administration. The East India Company's governor general was essentially the British overlord of India. This period of Indian history, From about 1757 to 1858 was company rule. That's what it's called. And it was boom times for the British Empire. At one point, the East India Company controlled half, half of all world trade. Cotton, silk, indigo, salt, spices. They ruled it all. And they were always looking for new conquests. I mean markets. Sorry, markets. It's a subtle difference. But as powerful as the British Empire was, it had a rival. After the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815, there were only two Western powers left with real global ambitions. Britain, with its naval and trade dominance, and the vast land power of Tsarist Russia. Britain and Russia, as it turned out, were on a collision course, because Russian influence and imperialism was spreading throughout Central Asia and the Middle East. By the 1830s, Persia, for instance, was basically a Russian puppet state, and Russian agents were constantly popping up all over Central Asia. This invoked great fear and insecurity in Britain. Throughout the whole Victorian era, British media was constantly wailing about the Russian menace. There was even a whole subgenre of, like, invasion literature describing the vast Russian hordes that were going to attack London or Delhi any day now. Russia wasn't going to invade England, with what navy, but the British were definitely worried that Russian expansion through Central Asia would enable them to invade India, the most important part of their empire. For most of the 19th century, therefore, Britain and Russia would struggle for control of Central Asia in a dirty war of spies, saboteurs, and even assassins. It was called the Great Game. Various agents and incognito observers would travel across nearly uncharted territories to try and foil the latest plot of the Tsar or the Queen. They would travel in disguise, gather information on the activities of the enemy and report back. Sometimes the agents would even try to sabotage each other's plans. It was very romantic and exciting, like a whole bunch of swashbuckling adventure novel style events and adventure novels were written about the great game. If this sounds a little bit like the Cold War, Yeah, you're not the first person to notice. It is a lot like the Cold War. The first of these great agents, your 19th century James Bond, if you will, was a Highland Scot named Alexander Burns. Burns was a well-connected, handsome, resourceful young man with extraordinary talents. He also really loved the ladies, which would end up being his fatal flaw. Burns became legendary when he made an expedition deep into Central Asia to the great trading city of Bukhara, Upon his return, he wrote a best-selling book about his experiences, because of course he did. Burns was like a celebrity, and he was also one of the main British experts on Central Asia. This made him an ideal choice in 1837 for one of the first major British contacts with Afghanistan. So we have to go to Afghanistan, right? These days, Afghanistan is pretty far from the center of the world, but that wasn't always the case. For most of history, Afghanistan was a very valuable piece of real estate. For one big reason. The Khyber Pass. This is the best land route through the Hindu Kush Mountains, which makes it the only good connection between Central Asia and India, which made it one of the most important strategic and economic choke points on the continent, the Khyber Pass. So there's this meme, right? This saying that Afghanistan has never been conquered. And it's just not true, man. Afghanistan was conquered all the time because everyone wanted to control the Khyber Pass. It was a magnet for conquering armies that either needed to use the pass as an invasion route or needed to stop someone else from using the pass as an invasion route. Invading India through the Khyber Pass was practically the Eurasian national sport. You have the Persians, Alexander the Great, the Arabs, the Turks, the Mongols, the Mughals. If you rule India... The Khyber Pass is where your next problem is coming from. So if the Russians tried to invade India, they would have to use the Khyber Pass. But to control the Khyber Pass, you have to work with the locals. The difficult and divided land of Afghanistan is inhabited by a difficult and divided people. It is a mind-melting rainbow of tribes and clans and ethnic groups. Most of them live in decentralized villages under local leaders, and few acknowledge any authority beyond the tribal chief. Leadership in Afghan society has always been collaborative and decentralized based on tribal coalitions and ethnic loyalties more than any real center of power. Afghanistan is not a nation the same way the United States, France, or China is. All this makes Afghanistan very, very difficult to control and conquer. So what was a conqueror to do? Well, you could try to impose direct control on Afghanistan. You might win some battles, but it was both expensive and nigh impossible to permanently subdue this broken land. It was much less of a headache, much cheaper in the long run to just pay the tribes off with cash, especially those tribes that lived near the Khyber Pass, after all. The only thing anyone really wanted in Afghanistan was the Khyber Pass, and if those guys were paid off, they stayed quiet. So a light touch and a generous purse became the only way to conquer, quote, Afghanistan. Over the centuries, these subsidies, these payments to the tribes, became a staple of the Afghan economy and an important source of power for the tribal chiefs. Now, what was Afghanistan up to lately? In the 1740s, very briefly, Afghanistan went from being the crossroads of empires to being an empire in its own right. Ahmed Shah Durrani, an experienced military leader, rallied a coalition of tribes and built a large empire based on Afghanistan. His plundering of India and the riches he gained from that even turned the cities of Kabul and Kandahar into centers of culture and learning and really awesome poetry. Ahmed Shah Durrani is kind of considered the founder of modern Afghanistan. You're Afghan George Washington, kind of, sort of, not really. But a lot of this was smoke and mirrors. See, Ahmed Shah's empire was powerful, but fragile, like a glass cannon. It was built on an unstable coalition of tribes and his own personal charisma. And when he died in 1772, his sons all started murdering each other for power. For about the next 70 years, Afghanistan was just a murderous conga line of men trying to gain, regain, or keep the throne. Literally anytime someone did gain the throne, he immediately had 20 brothers or cousins or uncles out for his head. And even if he managed to fight them off, he probably didn't control much beyond the capital of Kabul itself. This is the rule in Afghanistan, and remember this. There's always someone gunning for you if you're on top in Afghanistan. Now, I should make this clear. These Afghan tribal feuds are dark, nasty stuff. Some of this is horror movie material. One of the slightly psychotic things about it is how these awesome Afghan poets always described it in such pretty words. So in in 1800, right, One of the shahs, Shah Zaman, is imprisoned and his captors blinded him with a hot needle because that's what you do. The Afghan chronicler, Mirza Atta, described it like this. The point quickly spilled the wine of his sight from the cup of his eyes. Yeah, so that's pretty rough. A Hallmark movie, this is not. Occasionally, though, someone managed to avoid being horribly murdered. Shah Shuja Durrani the grandson of Ahmad Shah, came to the throne of Afghanistan in 1803. But in 1809, he was overthrown and exiled by his own brother. He got away with life, limb, and eyesight intact, so he's already kind of ahead of the game. But Shuja's life story is marked by his determination and belief in his destiny, but also by rotten luck and miserable failure. When he got to India, he went through a series of unfortunate events, mainly revolving around being captured and tortured or trying and failing to retake his throne then being captured and tortured by 1818 having failed in his third attempt to come back to afghanistan shah shuja settled down as a guest of the east india company in the town of ludiana there he pretended that he still mattered behaving like the exiled shah of afghanistan that he believed himself to be shuja lounged around ludiana with the women of his harem and all of his slaves cutting off their noses, ears, tongues, or penises if they made him mad. So why did the East India Company tolerate this creep living on their property? Well, some highly placed people in the company thought that it might be useful to have an Afghan king sitting around. You know, just in case. So by 1826, the big man in Kabul was the warlord Dost Muhammad Khan, Somehow, in all the anarchy and chaos of Afghanistan, he had clawed his way to supremacy. Dost-Muhammad had used a combination of diplomacy, patronage, and ruthlessness to defeat rebellions and stay on the throne. It took a strong, clever man to wrangle the Afghan tribes, and Dost-Muhammad was about as strong and clever as they came. He inherited an Afghanistan torn by war with an empty treasury and no standing army, and somehow he made it work. He still had to beat off challengers with a stick, including Shah Shuja, in his fourth attempt to reclaim his throne in 1834. Didn't go well then either. So when Alexander Burns arrived in Afghanistan on his journeys, this is the situation he found: Dost Muhammad carefully ruling a very disunited, fragile kingdom through strength, skill, and of course, tribal subsidies. He had no control at all in the west or the north. In various cities like Kandahar or Herat were practically independent. This caused the British a lot of anxiety, since the East India Company believed that a weak Afghanistan could never stop Russia from invading India. In May 1837, just as a teenage girl named Victoria became Queen of England, the East India Company decided that something had to be done about Afghanistan. It was a security threat. It had to be locked down one way or another the new Governor-General of India, Lord Auckland, began to look for options. On the one hand, there was Alexander Burns, the famous explorer, who argued that the British should ally with Dost-Muhammad and secure the Khyber Pass through diplomacy. Burns figured that the Afghans would resent being told what to do, but they might be open to persuasion. Ally with Dost-Muhammad, give him money and guns, and he'll keep the pass safe for us. But on the other hand, was a faction led by the pompous, vain, and fussy William McNaughton. McNaughton was Lord Auckland's secretary, a long-serving East India bureaucrat who believed himself to be both a master of intrigue, for some reason, and an expert on Afghanistan, even though he'd never been near the country, for some reason. Instead of Dost Muhammad, McNaughton favored the exiled Shah Shuja as the rightful ruler of Afghanistan, you know, that Afghan king that they thought might come in handy. The secretary also thought that Shuja would be easier to control and manipulate because he would owe his throne to the British. That's MacNaughton's position. Replace Dost Mohammed with Shah Shuja. So in 1837, Lord Auckland decided to try Burns' idea first and sent him to Kabul on a diplomatic mission to get an alliance with Dost Muhammad Khan. It should have been easy because the Afghan ruler was interested in an alliance. He wanted British money and weapons to lock down his country and assert his authority. So Burns should have succeeded. But two big things happened in 1837 that killed any chance of this alliance. The first was that the Persians attacked and besieged the city of Herat in western Afghanistan. Remember, the Persians are heavily influenced by Russia and British agents confirmed the presence of Russian officers incognito in the Persian army. This seemed to confirm Britain's darkest nightmares. Oh, oh Lord, the Russians are about to take over Afghanistan. What do we do? The second big thing happened in Kabul. So with Burns in Kabul, McNaughton had gone behind his back, whispered in Lord Auckland's ear, and had him send Burns conflicting instructions that confused and irritated Dost Mohammed during the negotiations. Even worse, in December 1837, a Russian agent arrived in Kabul to persuade Dost Mohammed to ally with the Tsar. Remember how these great game agents are always trying to foil each other's plans? Well, in this case, the Russians won. And thanks to McNaughton's scheming, Burns' possible alliance fell apart. Alexander Burns left Kabul in defeat in April 1838 and returned to find the company preparing to invade Afghanistan. McNaughton had won. On October 1st, 1838, Lord Auckland made a formal proclamation that stated his intention to restore Shah Shuja to the throne of Afghanistan, formally initiating the First Anglo-Afghan War. But by the time that Governor General Auckland had committed to this invasion, things had changed. The Persians failed to take Herat and were forced to retreat and Russia's possible alliance with Afghanistan fell through. The Tsar didn't want it. So that wasn't a problem anymore either. Any threat to British India had gone. The entire rationale for the invasion had vanished. But no one seems to have thought twice about attacking Afghanistan. The plan had acquired a momentum of its own. Besides, the British never needed much reason to go invade somebody. But who was doing the invading? I'm going to talk multiple times in today's podcast about British armies and British troops, but most of these troops are not British. Remember how I said the East India Company had its own standing army? The East India, rank and file, were mostly native Indians, drilled and trained to fight in the European style and led by British officers. These mercenary Indian soldiers were often called sepoys, and it was these troops that had done the heavy lifting in the conquest of India. Britain never could have conquered India without Indians. So there's a difference between the regular British army and the sepoy regiments of the East India Company's army. The vast majority of the troops that fought in Afghanistan would be sepoys. And they functioned a bit differently from the British regulars. I love the sepoys. They're fascinating to me, really fascinating. See, they came from traditionally military castes. They were usually recruited from the same community or village. And Indian customs were incorporated into the usual British system. This included the practice of bringing entire families along to war. Each Sepoy usually had a wife and several children, and there there wasn't no welfare system to support them in their village. There was no social security or anything. So he was their only source of support. For every Sepoy that invaded Afghanistan, almost three camp followers, the women and children, marched with him. The consequences would be tragic. The British soldiers and sepoys were both trained to fight in close infantry formations with volleys of musket fire, that's their fighting tactic, the usual European tactics of the time. Every soldier in the British army still carried the brown bess, a muzzle-loading musket with a bayonet. They'd carried this thing since 1722, from Bunker Hill to Waterloo and now in India in the 1830s. It weighed 9.6 pounds, was 39 inches long, easy to use and maintain, but it had a very short range of about 100 yards. So, no, it wasn't an assault rifle, but it did the business. The invasion would be commanded by General Sir John Keane, but the real brains of the operation was William McNaughton, the fussy, top-hatted secretary who had thought this whole thing up. The British Army of the Indus was composed of 14,000 East India sepoys 1,000 British regulars and a rabble of about 6,000 mercenaries recruited by Shah Shuja for his glorious procession back home. The sepoys would be followed by no less than 38,000 civilian camp followers. The baggage train was enormous because the British seemed to think, for some reason, that they were going on vacation. Huh, I don't know. General Keene required 260 camels to carry all his crap, and the army's wine supply alone required 300 camels. One unit had two camels carrying just their cigars. These guys did not know how to pack light, man. I don't know what they're doing. So this was the British force that would fight in Afghanistan. The generals and their ludicrous baggage. The sepoys and their hordes of wives and children, all marching along in red coats and white cross belts with tall black hats and gleaming muskets. At their head is William McNaughton with his top hat, coattails, and spectacles. Tagging along was the young Alexander Burns, who didn't like this plan, but still wanted to go along for the adventure. Oh yeah, success is written all over this thing. Real quick, what else is going on in 1839, the year the British begin the invasion of Afghanistan? When is this exactly? Well, in America, Martin Van Buren is president. Abe Lincoln is just an unknown lawyer in Illinois. Photography is literally invented this year. Opera is all the rage in Europe, and Queen Victoria is 18 years old. Edgar Allan Poe published The Fall of the House of Usher this year. Hope that helps just to place you in time. So the Brits are about to invade Afghanistan. But here's the twist. General Keene's army wasn't going up the Khyber Pass. I know, I know, I wasted five minutes of your life telling you about the Khyber Pass. But this is important. An Indian ruler controlled the east side of the pass. And when the British asked to march across his territory, he said, no, no, no. So the British had to invade the other way, across the desolate land of Balochistan, through the Bolan Pass, and into southern Afghanistan towards Kandahar. Do you know where that is? No? Well, that's the problem. The British really didn't know either. What the British thought was an easy route into Afghanistan was actually a terrible 150-mile quagmire of nasty swamps, barren desert, and hostile tribesmen. See, there's a reason no one ever invades Afghanistan this way and that's because it sucks. When the British stepped off on their invasion in February 1839, their little vacation march turned into a disaster. Think of like the Dead Marshes from Lord of the Rings. And now imagine these idiots trying to carry their wine camels and polo gear across this nightmare road. Then after that came the desert, The Baluchi tribes in the area were not thrilled with this mob of redcoats and sepoys crossing their backyard, and constantly raided or ambushed the army. It was a miserable trip. One British officer remembered the crossing of the desert. Here's what he said. The sepoys were heavily laden for such a march, the burden doubling the already unbearable oppression of their tight-fitting woolen uniforms, the condition of the men in such circumstances was pitiable, and every minute their sufferings increased. The poor, heavily laden camp followers, some carrying infants, were in a more pitiable state still, and the children's cries were heart-rending. One of the native officers in camp had with him his little girl, his only child, whose mother was dead. I used to see her every day chattering to her father, helping him light the fire and cook their food and her pretty little ways were a delight to witness. I saw her at 10 o'clock all well, and at 3 p.m. she was dead and laid out for burial. With the army starving and suffering heavily from disease, Alexander Burns came to the rescue, of all people. He arranged to buy a bunch of food from the local chiefs. At a huge markup, of course, but he got the food. But one Afghan chieftain had a warning for Alexander Burns. He told him that the British mission was futile, and that the Afghans would never accept Shah Shuja as their leader. He asked the young adventurer a final question. You have brought an army into Afghanistan, but how do you propose to take it out again? The exhausted army finally reached Kandahar on April 25, 1839. And while they were resting, Shuja had a cute little ceremony where he was formally reinstated as the Shah of Afghanistan. Which was nice and all, but this wasn't over yet. The army still had to march about 300 more miles to reach the Afghan capital of Kabul. Remember, they took the long way around because they weren't allowed to take the Khyber Pass. Keen left a division to hold Kandahar and began to make his way northeast in the direction of Kabul. Afghan resistance was not very effective. Remember how we talked about the structure of Afghanistan's government and how it was an unstable coalition of tribes? See, Dos Muhammad didn't have an army, not like we think of it. Afghan military power was based on tribal levies, which were powerful when they were motivated enough, but they lacked organization or centralized authority. You could ask the tribal chiefs to give you support. They might. They might not they might just do their own thing. Of course, just because the Afghans weren't a regular army, that didn't mean they weren't dangerous. The Afghan mountain fighters were excellent marksmen, and most of them carried a rifle called the Giselle. Unlike the British, who fought in close formations with short-range blasts of musket fire, the Afghans fought as clouds of sharpshooters, and these Giselles were effective at about 500 yards, which, if you're keeping count, is about five times the range of the British brown best musket. If they weren't fighting on foot, the Afghans were fighting as light cavalry, launching hit-and-run attacks, then disappearing back into the hills. Now, these Afghan tactics were really annoying, and they caused some casualties, but they weren't going to stop the British. About halfway to Kabul, though, the army found something that could stop them. The great fortress city of Ghazni stood directly in their path, occupied by 3,000 Afghans who were led by one of Dost Muhammad's sons with 60-foot-thick walls, 150-foot-high towers. The British had no guns that could penetrate this fortress. They hadn't expected it. So what were they going to do? The British got lucky. See, the fortress at Ghazni was something that they had not planned to have to deal with, and it could have ended their expedition right there. But one of Alexander Burns' agents found a local Afghan who gave them some vital intelligence. All of the entrances to the Ghazni fortress were bricked up except one on the north side. If the British managed to launch a surprise attack at this position, they could overwhelm the fortress before the Afghans even knew what was happening. Under cover of darkness on July 23rd, a small group of engineers snuck up to the wall and began to pile 300 pounds of gunpowder against the north gate. When the charges went off, the wall was shattered in a thunderous roar bricks and dust flying everywhere. Within minutes, storming parties of the Queen's infantry were charging blindly into the cloud of smoke, stumbling through the rubble and relying on their bayonets to deliver a shock to the Afghan defender. Their leader was General Robert Sale, known to his troops as Fighting Bob. On foot at the head of his men, he was wounded and nearly killed, but managed to behead his attacker with the chop of his sword. Fighting Bob isn't a name you get for nothing. It took the British the rest of the day to finish clearing Ghazni. At the cost of 17 dead, they had taken the fortress, and the road to Kabul was open. The storming of Ghazni sent shockwaves across Afghanistan. When the news arrived, Dost Muhammad's little army that he'd been assembling near Kabul began to give up and head for home. Nope, not fighting that. So even though Ghazni wasn't a huge battle on its own, it had a big impact on Afghan morale. Dost Muhammad and his son, Akbar Khan, fled Kabul for the hills of northern Afghanistan. The army of the Indus reached Kabul in triumph on August 7, 1839. Shah Shuja led a marvelous procession into the city, covered in jewels and mounted on a white horse, and he was met with silence. See, the Afghans didn't really have strong feelings about Shah Shuja one way or another. You've seen one Durrani prince, you've seen them all. He hadn't actually been to Afghanistan in over 20 years, but uh, who knows? Who knows? Maybe he'll make a good ruler. But the Afghans did have strong feelings about all those red coats marching behind him. That gave them reason to worry. But the British had won. Sure, the invasion had started out pretty rocky, but they'd taken the castle. The rightful king had returned, and everything had worked out. And most importantly, the Russian menace had been thwarted. Good show, lads. Well done. War's over. But remember what that chief said. They had gotten their army in. How were they going to get it out? Dos Muhammad and his charismatic and talented son, Prince Akbar Khan, were still at large. Shah Shuja's support was very fragile. Finally... The vast majority of Afghans didn't act conquered. They seemed to adopt a wait-and-see approach. How was this going to play out? When they weren't sullen and defiant, they were cautious. None of this boded well if people were paying attention. But the British weren't paying attention. The war was over. They'd won. In late 1839, Lord Auckland pulled General Keane and about half the army out of Afghanistan. He had gotten involved in another war in China over something called opium, long story, and he needed the resources for that new project. The fussy and stubborn William McNaughton, the new envoy to Kabul, was now virtually in charge of the remaining British forces in Afghanistan. So with the war apparently over, the British made themselves at home. Besides the main garrison in Kabul, they placed smaller garrisons across the country especially in Kandahar and Jalalabad. Jalalabad was critical because it was midway down the Khyber Pass between Kabul and India. The main army, still stationed at Kabul, required a base of operations. They wanted to use the Bala Hissar Fortress, the main fortress of Kabul, but Shah Shuja was currently living there and it wasn't a good look for British soldiers to be literally in his house, so they had to build their camp somewhere else. The camp they built The Kabul Cantonment turned out to be one of the single worst decisions in the history of the British army. It was in the worst possible place, with the worst possible design. It was placed in a spot of low, swampy ground, overlooked by multiple nearby fortresses, so the Afghans could see everything inside the fort. The big rectangular camp was surrounded by two miles of low earth wall and no other fortifications. Worst of all, the British for some reason, stored their food and ammunition in separate fortresses a quarter mile outside their camp. One Afghan castle literally sat between the camp and its food supply. I've done my research, and I I still can't figure out why they did this. It doesn't make any sense. It's just lunacy. But the war seemed over, and the British were on peacetime footing. Their officers built a racetrack. They started playing polo. They were even out ice skating. And as the cantonment filled up with barracks and houses, it also filled up with camp followers. British and Indian wives and children arrived to join their husbands in the totally peaceful occupation. One of these wives will be a main character for the rest of this episode. Florentia, Lady Sale, the wife of Fighting Bob Sale. Lady Sale is awesome, no two ways about it. The army wife to put all other army wives to shame. They called her the Grenadier in Petticoats because of her powerful personality and courage. She'd even brought along her own daughter, who was engaged to a young British officer. But the British enjoyed occupation duty a bit too much. They were living it up, man, drinking huge amounts of alcohol and enjoying the company of Indian prostitutes, much to the horror of the locals. It got even worse when the occupiers started enjoying the company of Afghan women which seriously offended Afghan senses of honor and masculine pride. The British soldiers even had a rhyme. A Kabul wife under burqa cover was never known without a lover. Maybe don't let the Afghans hear you saying that, guys. One Afghan writer recorded how the British behaved. The English drank the wine of shameless immodesty, forgetting that any act has its consequences and rewards. So that after a while, the spring garden of the king's regime was blighted by the autumn of these ugly events. The nobles complained to each other. Day by day we are exposed because of the English to deceit and lies and shame. Soon the women of Kabul will give birth to half-caste monkeys. It's a disgrace. And no one was worse about this than the great game adventurer Alexander Burns, He couldn't get enough of the ladies, and apparently they couldn't get enough of him. His man-whoring was extremely visible and extremely offensive to the Afghans. Now, all of this bad behavior could have been ignored if Shah Shuja's new government had been worth the crap, but it wasn't. See, Shuja might have sat on the throne, but William McNaughton was really in charge, and his main worry was money. The East India Company had shareholders, remember, and the invasion of Afghanistan had already cost a ton. McNaughton was ordered to cut corners and trim the budget wherever he could. He was also told to push Shuja in a direction that was acceptable to the company. So over the course of the occupation, McNaughton sidelined Shah Shuja more and more, cutting his budget and imposing his own agenda. It was pretty obvious to the Afghans, who really held power in the Bala Hissar Palace. One of McNaughton's big projects was an Afghan National Army, built on the same lines as the British Army. This was supposed to replace the old tribal levy system, which had always been the main source of Afghan military power. Shuja knew this was a bad idea. The taxes to fund this army would fall very hard on the very poor Afghans, and cutting the chiefs out of the system would remove their main reason for loyalty to the new government. But McNaughton firmly believed in his own genius and thought that the British could rule in Afghanistan just like they ruled in India. He didn't listen to Shuja, who actually understood Afghan politics and knew how the tribal power structure worked. He had already been Shah for six years back in the 1800s. With this important piece missing from the Afghan political system, rebellions began to flare up in outlying regions. So by the autumn of 1840, taking advantage of the unrest, dost Mohammad Khan came out from hiding and began to rally the northern tribes to his banner. They began to ambush scattered British garrisons and proclaimed a jihad against the foreigners. Even worse, some of Shuja's brand new National Army units just went over to Dost-Muhammad's side. So yeah, the Afghan National Army was about as dependable then as it is now. Fighting Bob Sale marched out to suppress the rebellion, and Alexander Burns tagged along to negotiate with local chiefs. After several weeks of fighting with Dost Mohammed's followers, including an encounter with Dost Muhammad himself in this crazy cavalry battle, they had little to show for it except a bunch of dead people. It seemed like the rebellion was going to continue for quite a while. But one day, outside Kabul, William McNaughton was taking just a leisurely ride when a few Afghans came riding up to him. He was surprised to recognize Dost Muhammad himself, and even more surprised to learn that he was there to surrender. Dost Muhammad had realized that he wasn't going to win this one, and figured that by surrendering, he might get on the good side of the British. Now Shuja wanted him beheaded, Shuja was like, no, get rid of this guy. But McNaughton treated the defeated ruler with courtesy. Dost Muhammad was sent back to India to be held in lavish captivity, just like Shuja had been for the last two decades they even gave him Shuja's old rooms. After all, who knew? Might be handy to have an Afghan king sitting around someday. So, it's over, right? Nope. Even if Dos Muhammad was in captivity, his clever and ruthless son Akbar Khan had refused to surrender. He was still out there, just waiting for his chance. Remember, it's Afghanistan. There's always someone gunning for you if you're on top in Afghanistan. The winter of 1840 to 1841 passed with only a few skirmishes. There was still resistance, but now that Dost-Mohammed had been captured, MacNaughton and the rest of the British fell into a false sense of security. The occupiers were oblivious to the rising tide of hatred and resistance around them. The Afghans continued to stew in the insult of their occupation, The mullahs preached against the infidel foreigners, and it became clearer by the day that Shuja had no real power in Afghanistan. This is the problem with puppet rulers. The more obvious it is that they're a puppet, the less effective they are. Sooner or later, something was going to snap. As the British sat on the tip of a volcano, a new commander arrived to take charge of British troops in Afghanistan. Major General William George Keith Elphinstone was an extremely well-connected man from a powerful British family, and he owed his appointment to his personal friendship with Lord Auckland. He was also a nice person, and this was the best you could say about him. Elphinstone was weak, elderly, ridden with gout, indecisive, incompetent, and totally ignorant of India or Afghanistan. He could barely mount a horse, and his last service had been leading an infantry battalion at Waterloo. You know, 25 years ago. He hated India and the Indian troops he led, calling them woolly black Negroes. His words, not mine. He was the worst possible choice for his job, and to top it all off, Elphinstone didn't even want the job. He'd only come off reserve status to pay off his debts, and the Afghan job had not been given to him as a favor, not because he was competent. So while unrest continued to rise, McNaughton continued to send overconfident reports back to India. Lord Auckland reported that it was awesome that things were going so well, and since things were going so well, they would have to cut his budget again. Afghanistan was costing a million pounds a year to pay all those soldiers, buy supplies, pay off the tribes, and subsidize Chuja's court. McNaughton weighed up all these costs, looked at what he could cut, and decided to cut the tribal subsidies. He summoned all the tribal leaders including the Gilzai chiefs, the men who guarded the Khyber Pass, to tell them their budgets were being cut in half. Sorry, guys. That's how it is. No hard feelings, right? Yes, hard feelings. The chiefs were pissed. They believed that they had worked hard for that subsidy. The tribes of the Khyber Pass had been paid by every ruler who ever set foot in Afghanistan, all the way back to the ancient Persian Empire, to safeguard the passes to India. By cutting their pay and undermining the political order, in their eyes, McNaughton had insulted them and trampled on their traditional rights. He had even alienated some of Shuja's biggest supporters, who were able to look the other way at all the depravity of the British soldiers as long as they got their check. The problem was that by 1841, the Chiefs and the tribes could not afford these cuts. Their taxes had been raised. All that British cash flowing into Afghanistan was causing inflation. Prices had risen by almost 500%. For the Afghan chiefs, their communities and societies depended on the subsidies that they had been paid for centuries. And now, when Afghanistan's economy was collapsing, this little man in his spectacles and top hat and coattails was basically telling them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Get a real job, he said. Predictably, as soon as the Gilzai chiefs returned to the Khyber Pass, they began to ambush British supply columns. A frustrated McNaughton decided to send General Sale up into the pass to clear out these impudent rascals. On October 9th, 1841, General Robert Fighting Bob Sale left Kabul with a thousand men, and within days, they were fighting for their lives in the narrow, rocky Cord Cobble Pass. Fighting Bob, who was basically being wounded all the time, took a bullet in the ankle, but his troops kept their cool and avoided being overwhelmed. After a month of hacking their way through the mountains, Sale and his men finally reached the walls of Jalalabad on November 12th. They had no choice but to hunker down. The hills around them were full of Afghan tribesmen, and no help was coming. General Sale hoped his family was safe. They were not safe, because while he was fighting his way to Jalalabad, Everything back in Kabul had finally gone to hell. The Afghans had been simmering throughout the British occupation. And at the start of November 1841, they finally boiled over. Remember how I talked about the British getting it on with Afghan women and what an insult that was? Well, that was what finally lit the spark. On the night of November 1st, 1841, a slave girl belonging to a local Afghan chieftain fled to the house of Alexander Burns. When Burns refused to send the girl back, the Afghan chiefs met to decide what to do about this latest insult. Keep in mind, yeah, slavery's bad, but from the Afghan perspective, it was the last straw. One Afghan chief addressed the rest of the group. Here's what he said. Now, we are justified in throwing off this English yoke. They stretch the hand of tyranny to dishonor private citizens great and small. Screwing a slave girl isn't worth the ritual bath that follows it, but we have to put a stop right here and now. Otherwise, these English will ride the donkey of their desires into the field of stupidity, to the point of having us all arrested and deported. I put my trust in God, and raise the battle standard of our Prophet Muhammad, and thus go to fight. If success rewards us, then that is as we wished. And if we die in battle, That is still better than to live with degradation and dishonor. The angry chiefs led a mob into the streets of Kabul, and their first destination was the house of that great game adventurer, Alexander Burns. Any white man caught in the street alone was killed, and the rest scrambled for cover. As November 2nd dawned, the mob mustered up their courage and assaulted the British compound. The Afghans stormed the British buildings in Kabul, killing the guards, servants, women, and children, and looting the riches of the hated English. Burns tried to calm down the crowd from the balcony, but soon the mob was breaking down his doors. He and his younger brother tried to disguise themselves and flee, but they were betrayed by a house servant. The mob closed in on Alexander Burns and his brother, hacking them to pieces with knives. The mortal remains of Alexander Burns, the 19th century James Bond, soon hung in pieces from the tree outside his house. It took five hours for the people of Kabul to destroy the embassy, while the British troops in the cantonment were half an hour's march away. Both General Elphinstone and McNaughton should have reacted early to the uprising, but elderly and competent Elphinstone was paralyzed by indecision, and McNaughton underestimated the danger until it was too late. The only one who made any move to save Alexander Burns was Shah Shuja, of all people, but the troops that he sent from the Hissar palace failed to make it to Burns' house in time. The total lack of a British response to the uprising gave the Afghans a huge boost of confidence. The chiefs hadn't really expected their insurrection to be so successful. They were just acting, but found out that they were pushing in an open door. If Elphinstone or McNaughton had acted quickly, they could have prevented the uprising from gaining momentum. But they didn't. Soon, thousands of Afghans were flooding into the city from the countryside. The British were forced out of Kabul entirely and had to take shelter inside their cantonment. The army was under virtual siege, cut off from their food and ammo, which, remember, were outside the cantonment in an indefensible camp surrounded by high ground. All their bad decisions were piling up. The uprising rippled across Afghanistan. Isolated British garrisons were being massacred or forced to retreat. Soon, the only forces left were the main army outside Kabul, pinned down and surrounded by Afghans, and the forces still holding Kandahar and Jalalabad. McNaughton had finally woken up to the danger he was in. He sent messages to General William Knotts' garrison in Kandahar and to General Sale in Jalalabad, asking for reinforcements. But both Kandahar and Jalalabad were barely hanging on themselves. There was no help coming from India, since Lord Auckland's treasury was empty. As soon as he heard of the uprising, in fact, Lord Auckland had basically written McNaughton off. It would just cost too much money to come save him. Lady Sale, locked in the cantonment with the other women and civilians, was disgusted with General Elphinstone's feeble reaction. He sat in a black funk of depression, confused and indecisive, as Kabul burned and the Afghans surrounded his camp. Shuja, still holed up in the Bala Hissar fortress, urged the British to come join him inside the walls. But McNaughton refused to abandon the cantonment. One of his reasons was, get this, it had cost too much money to build to just abandon. As the troops and their families began to starve, cut off from their food, they lost all hope in their leaders, or even their own survival. The British did make several attempts to break out of the encirclement and recover their supplies. But thanks to the total collapse of the troops' morale and the total vacuum of leadership at the top, every effort failed. The British were out of military options. To be fair, the chiefs weren't sure what to do next either. They were like, well, we didn't expect to win. But three weeks after the uprising began, a leader arrived to coordinate them. A crash of rifle volleys and cheering signaled the arrival of Dost Muhammad Khan's fiery and talented son, Akbar Khan, at the head of 6,000 cavalry. Akbar Khan immediately put himself in charge of the resistance. Keep in mind, these are the Afghans. There were many other candidates to lead the revolt, and even as a prince, Akbar Khan had no automatic authority. But Akbar Khan received the support of the Ghazis, the religious warriors that made up most of the rank and file, and the chiefs accepted him as their leader on a temporary, collaborative basis. McNaughton, who had no other option at this point, decided to negotiate with the Afghans. Time was not on his side, because the army's food and medical situation was only getting worse, and winter was coming. After almost three weeks of negotiations, on December 11th, McNaughton came to an agreement with the Afghan chiefs. He offered to withdraw all British forces from the country if they provided him with food and safe passage through the Khyber Pass. It looked like a clean escape. But while McNaughton was negotiating with the leaders of the uprising, he was also trying to double-cross them. See, McNaughton was convinced, always had been, that he was a political genius and believed that he could get the Afghans to turn on each other. He wanted to pull some Game of Thrones-style maneuvering. So while he negotiated with the other chiefs in public, in private, he opened secret talks with Akbar Khan. Akbar offered McNaughton a secret deal that would turn over several of the Afghan leaders to British custody for punishment, and then give Akbar a high position in Shah Shuja's court. McNaughton was over the moon. He believed that his brilliant intrigues had found a wedge between the Afghan leaders that he could exploit. But McNaughton was not a player. McNaughton was being played. Akbar had kept the Afghan chiefs in the loop when he made this underhanded deal, because he wanted to prove to them that the British could not be trusted, and McNaughton's eager response to his offer confirmed this fact. He also wanted to cement his own position as leader of the uprising, and by revealing McNaughton's double cross, he made himself look honest and patriotic. McNaughton agreed to ride out of the cantonment to meet with Akbar Khan in person. Despite warnings from many people, including even Elphinstone, he scoffed at the idea of a plot saying, Leave it to me. I understand these things better than you. Around noon, on December 23rd, 1841, McNaughton rode out to meet the Afghans without waiting for his escort. I guess he figured he was too smart and too clever for anything bad to happen to him. The meeting went well at first. The British and Afghans exchanged pleasantries and gifts as they sat in a circle on the snowy hillside. As the meeting went on, though, McNaughton's staff noticed a growing number of Afghans crowding in around the meeting. When they asked Akbar what was going on, he just smiled and said, They are all in on the secret. Then the Afghans struck. McNaughton's aides were seized, disarmed, and dragged away from the meeting. But they were sent back to the cantonment unharmed. The same could not be said for William McNaughton. As the little man lay cowering at the feet of Akbar Khan, The prince yelled. You are the minister of a great king, the head of a glorious army. All foreign dignitaries pay tribute to your knowledge and accomplishments. But I must beg to differ, and consider you a fool. One whose word cannot be relied on, who reveals his inner treachery by what he writes. You have not been able to get the better of us in battle, and now you seek to destroy us by deceit. You faithless, cheating trickster, so quick to betray our agreement. Did you think I would trust you? Do you think it would be so easy to get us to mutually destroy each other for your convenience? Do you realize what a ridiculous figure you cut? Shame on you. You are a laughing stock. Akbar proceeded to kill McNaughton on the spot. According to the British, he shot him with a pistol. But according to the Afghans, Akbar sliced his head off with his sword. Lots of beheading in this story. Either way, McNaughton's severed head, still with its top hat, and his limbs were paraded throughout Kabul, and his torso was hung from a hook for all to see in the Kabul marketplace. William McNaughton, killed trying to break the terms of the treaty he had signed with the Afghans, had forgotten the rule. There's always someone gunning for you if you're on top in Afghanistan. With McNaughton dead, the command now passed to General Elphinstone. So it basically passed to an empty shell. Elphinstone was about as useful as a box of rocks. He had no idea what to do next. Akbar Khan, with his sword still bloody from McNaughton's murder, promised Elphinstone that the British would be given food and allowed to leave peacefully. But first, the British had to hand over their artillery and all their money. While some officers pleaded with Elphinstone to take shelter in the Bala Hisar, Elphinstone seemed to be set on leaving Afghanistan as fast as possible. The British did as they were told, giving up their heavy guns and their treasury to Akbar Khan. But the food never seemed to come. There was always another delay. It would come tomorrow, maybe the next day. You understand. The few Afghan friends the British had left knew they were doomed. Shah Shuja seems to have been less upset with the British then surprised at how easily they had been defeated and he mourned the death of mcnaughton who he said really should have listened to him shuja pleaded with the british not to leave the cantonment not to trust akbar khan and to come hunker down him with him and the bala hisar but the british were set on their course they began to pack what little food they had saddle their pack animals and gather their families for a desperate attempt to escape afghanistan To reach Fighting Bob's garrison in Jalalabad, Elphinstone's army would have to retrace Fighting Bob's steps by marching 90 miles through the snow-covered Cord Cobble Pass. Snow had been falling for the last three weeks. Temperatures were bottoming out. For a demoralized force with little food, little ammunition, and a desperately vulnerable train of camp followers, it was the next thing to suicide. On January 6th, 1842, Elphinstone's army left the Kabul cantonment to begin their long retreat. They only had 4,500 fighting men, mostly Indian sepoys, except for the 700 Englishmen of the 44th foot. They were accompanied by 12,000 other British and Indian camp followers, including Lady Sale and her pregnant daughter, who refused offers of protection and rode at the head of the column with the advance guard. The march began to fall apart basically immediately. Within hours of setting out, the British were being sniped at from every angle by the Afghan Ghazis with their long Jezail rifles. It was not long before the soldiers and civilians, exhausted and freezing, started falling out. They slumped over or just sat down to die. After two months of incompetent leadership and demoralizing defeats, they had lost any hope of survival. The army only made five miles the first day. Most of the soldiers and civilians got up to continue the march the next morning, but some of them would never rise again. As the column moved on, discipline and order began to collapse. Units lost cohesion. The sepoys abandoned their units to protect their vulnerable families, slogging forward through the rising snow in a pathetic attempt to get back home to sunny India. The column was shadowed by groups of Afghans who launched ambushes and raids on their foes, seizing plunder and even captives from the straggling force. Soon, Akbar Khan arrived with his cavalry to watch the British struggle. When the British demanded to know the reason for the Afghan attacks, they thought they had a truce, right? Akbar Khan just said they should have waited for his escort like he told them to. But he promised the British that he would provide food and an escort through the mountains if only they stopped and waited for the night. And Elf and Stone stopped the army and made camp, to the dismay of his officers, For some reason, Elphinstone was still trusting Akbar Khan. He believed that he would carry out his promises. Lady Sale was disgusted with Elphinstone and his leadership. By these unnecessary halts, we diminished our provisions, and having no cover for officers or men are all perfectly paralyzed with cold. The snow still lies more than a foot deep, no food for man or beast, and even water from the river close at hand difficult to obtain as our people are fired on in fetching it. On the third day of the march, the army finally entered the Kord Kabul Pass, the beginning of the longer Khyber Pass, and that meant that they were now in Gilzai country. Akbar Khan had some control over his own Ghazi warriors, but the Gilzai didn't take orders from anyone. Remember that Akbar's leadership is based on consensus, not authority, and the Gilzais were still mad that MacNaughton had cut their subsidies. These guys are the one group of people in Afghanistan you don't want to piss off. And they're pissed off. As they marched through the pass, Elphinstone's army walked into an ambush. The Gilzais had been preparing the battlefield for days, setting up trenches and concealed positions, waiting for the British to come this way. Now they waited until the packed, freezing mass of humanity had come all the way into the valley before unleashing sheets of accurate rifle fire. Lady Sale saw the scene unfold. The confusion was fearful. The force was perfectly disorganized. Nearly every man paralyzed with cold so as to be scarcely able to hold his musket or move. Lady Sale was leading and wrangling the women near the head of the column when she was shot in the wrist. And soon afterwards, she saw her son-in-law fall with a bullet to the abdomen. Soldier and civilian alike fell under the accurate Afghan rifle fire. When the army finally managed to escape, they left many bodies dead or dying in the snow. Any women or children who fell behind were robbed and either killed or taken captive to be sold into slavery. Akbar insisted to the British that he had done everything he could to restrain the Gilzais, but they had refused to listen to him. The British thought this was a lie. He might have been honest. The Gilzais were old foes of Akbar Khan's Durrani clan and he was barely more welcome on their turf than the Redcoats were. It's honestly not clear whether Akbar Khan could have stopped the eyes from attacking the British, and historians still argue over whether or not he ordered the massacre, let it happen, or even tried to stop it. My take? It's pretty clear to me that either way, he didn't try too hard to save his enemies from the consequences of their actions. The march continued in the teeth of a ferocious blizzard, The line of march was peppered with bodies, as the sub-zero temperatures killed hundreds. Flesh peeled off their feet in chunks, soldiers' hands froze to their muskets. It was becoming clear to everyone that there was only one way this could end. So when Akbar Khan offered to take in the British women and children, Elphinstone accepted. Among them were Lady Sale and her pregnant daughter, who had just watched her new husband die of his mortal wound. Surprisingly, Akbar Khan treated his prisoners courteously, feeding and sheltering them, but he made no such effort for the poor Indian camp followers who were slaughtered or kidnapped along the march. The British and Indian soldiers knew they were doomed, but some of them kept going, fighting off their attackers time and again. I think they moved on out of inertia, like a sense of inevitability. Most of them did finally succumb to wounds or frostbite or starvation. By January 11th, six days into the march, only about 200 fighting men were still left standing. All the civilians had neither killed or taken prisoner. Akbar Khan's troops were still shadowing this last remnant of the British army. And at this point, he offered to negotiate with Elphinstone in person. But when Elphinstone and his leading officers came up to chat, they were taken prisoner and kept with the other captives. They would not be permitted to die with their men. They had to live with their failure. At the very top of the pass, the Cobble Pass, the remnant of the army was confronted with a six-foot-high barricade across the narrow path. As the final survivors tried to climb over this obstacle, most were shot down as the Afghans surged in behind them. Only a very few managed to get over the barricade and hurry off into the snowy forest. Among them was the army's last doctor, William Bryden, who accepted a pony from a dying cavalryman. After several narrow escapes, Dr. Bryden rode off into the darkness in the direction of Jalalabad. Behind him, on the morning of January 13, 1842, the end came. The last survivors of Elphinstone's army had managed to make it to the hill of gandamak. There were only 65 men left, most of them from the 44th foot, but some sepoys still stood by them. As dawn came, the British fired off the last of their ammunition a desperate but futile last stand. After that, the Afghans closed in with swords and knives, and it was over. Only nine survivors were taken captive, including Lieutenant Thomas Souter, who hid the 44th's colors in his coat. As the final stand at Gandamak was taking place, Dr. William Bryden rode towards the walls of Jalalabad. Both he and his pony were wounded and he was nearly unconscious from exhaustion and pain when he was spotted by General Sales garrison and brought into the safety of the walls. When asked what had happened to the army, he simply said, I am the army. Now, despite popular myth, Dr. Bryden wasn't the only survivor. There were still the British officers and women and children that Akbar Khan had taken prisoner, and a handful of sepoys and stragglers would trickle in over the next several days. But the 1842 retreat from Kabul was one of the worst disasters in British military history. The product of both bad political policy and military incompetence, this was the image immortalized in Lady Butler's painting of Bryden's narrow escape from the Cord Kabul Pass. Behind him, the pass was thick with bodies, baggage, and blood. Elphinstone's army was gone. news of Elphinstone's destruction hit India like a thunderbolt. Lord Auckland suffered a stroke when he heard the news. Oh, think of all the money this would cost. And he ended up being replaced by a new governor general, the Earl of Ellenborough. Now, the new guy had a dilemma on his hands. What do I do now? The Afghan policy was obviously ruined. The company had poured massive amounts of blood and treasure into Afghanistan, and they had nothing to show for it. Ellenborough decided, enough is enough. Screw this. We're done. It's time to leave Afghanistan. The only question the British had to answer was, how do we leave without looking like we've been defeated? Appearances are important. But the war wasn't over yet. Even though Elphinstone's army was dead or in captivity, General Knott down in Kandahar and General Sale in Jalalabad still held on. Shah Shuja was even still holed up with some Afghan troops in the Bala Hissar Palace back in Kabul. There was still one more act to go. General Sale's force in Jalalabad ended up being Akbar Khan's first target. Akbar knew that the British would be out for revenge after Elphinstone's defeat, and by taking Jalalabad, he could control the Khyber Pass and block a second British invasion. But Jalalabad was a tough nut to crack. After all, this is fighting Bob. Though he was obviously worried about the fate of his wife and daughter, he still had a job to do. When the Afghan army arrived at Jalalabad to surround the city, the British were ready. The defense of Jalalabad is one of the great miniature epics of British military history. The garrison of British and Indian soldiers, mostly Indian, fought like lunatics, but their food supplies were dwindling, and if help didn't come soon, there might be a second disaster. Ellenborough ordered a new army formed at the bottom of the Khyber Pass. Its leader would be the sensible, professional General George Pollock. Its mission would be to cut its way through to Jalalabad Rescue General Sale and get the heck out of Afghanistan. As Pollock began to plan his rescue mission and patiently build up his army, and Sale clung to life in Jalalabad, Akbar Khan's coalition started to fall apart. This was always the weakness of the Afghan military system. Most of the Gilzais had run off with their loot as soon as Elphinstone's army was gone, leaving Akbar Khan without enough troops to maintain the siege of Jalalabad. And in March, Akbar was wounded in a friendly fire incident. Maybe intentional, maybe an assassination attempt. And then there was Shah Shuja, still locked up in Kabul, looking for a way to get out of this alive. As soon as the British had left Kabul, he began scheming to try and stay in power, and he had some support. There was a vocal anti-Akbar Khan faction in the Afghan coalition, and they began to look to Shuja as a possible second option. Remember, there's always someone gunning for you if you're on top in Afghanistan. Heck, Shuja started taking credit for kicking the British out, challenging Akbar Khan's position as head of the Afghan resistance. How does that make sense? Shuja was the British puppet. How did, what, what did he have to do with this? But Shuja clung to power for about four more months. On April 5th, 1842, after months of hesitation, he left the Bala Hissar in order to take command of the forces besieging Jalalabad. Shuja was barely out of the palace when he was shot and killed by a rival clan. He was 56 years old and the last ruler of the line of Ahmad Shah Durrani. As Shuja bled out in the streets of Kabul, Pollock's army began to climb the Khyber Pass. On April 5, 1842, he launched a surprise morning attack that overwhelmed the tribesmen in his way. Instead of being sniped at from the valleys, his men scaled the mountains and fought the Afghan riflemen on even ground. Pollock's army of sepoys and British regulars marched west to rescue General Sales' garrison in Jalalabad. But it turned out that they had rescued themselves. With only days of rations left and worried that no one was coming, Fighting Bob took a gamble. The sepoys came storming out of the gates on April 7th in a desperate attack, and they won. Outnumbered three to one, Sales' brigade drove off Akbar Khan's cavalry with those precise blasts of musket fire that the British were so good at, leaving the field littered with bodies. Afghans scattered into the hills, and the British even recaptured some of Elphinstone's lost cannon. Nine days later, on April 16th, Pollock's army arrived to find salesmen asking what had taken them so long. But it wasn't enough. The British army and the British public were determined to punish the Afghans for their massacre of Elphinstone's army and rescue the British prisoners that Akbar Khan still held. They made some noise about recovering their Indian military and civilian prisoners as well, but it was clear that they were a second priority. They were only Indians after all. After refitting and re-equipping, in August 1842, the British advanced. 14,000 troops, now called the Army of Retribution, climbed the Khyber Pass with the Afghan capital in their sights, As Pollock's men marched through the Afghan passes, they found the unburied bodies of the men, women, and children massacred in that terrible retreat. The British desire for vengeance grew, and despite their officers' orders, many of the soldiers committed brutal acts on the Afghan civilians in their path. On September 13th, as General Pollock's army poured out of the Kord Kabul Pass, Akbar Khan made one last attempt to stop the British. But this was not Elphinstone's battered, demoralized, freezing army. This was a highly motivated and well-led force of redcoats and sepoys eager for revenge. The British and Indian infantry drove the riflemen off the ridges with bayonet charges and disciplined volleys of musket fire, and Akbar's army once again evaporated. Two days later, their gunwheels crunching over the skulls of their dead comrades, the Army of Retribution finally arrived in front of Kabul, linking up with General Knott's army, which had marched over land from Kandahar. They found the city virtually deserted. The British job was short and simple. Get revenge, free the prisoners, get out of Afghanistan as fast as possible. Funny story, though, the prisoners found them. During the political turmoil after Akbar Khan's defeat, Lady Sale and several captured officers persuaded their guards to release them by promising cash payments in the future. Speechcraft skill of 100, right? On September 22nd, the prisoners reached British lines, and Lady Sale and her daughter had an emotional reunion with Fighting Bob. Elphinstone was not among the prisoners. He had died of illness in April 1842, and he is buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in the mountains of Afghanistan. No one looked too hard for. As for many of the Indian sepoys and their families, many were found and rescued, but many weren't and never would be. Some of Britain's loyal sepoy soldiers, and their wives and children, were condemned to live out their days as slaves in the wastes of Central Asia. Pollock's men spread out across northeast Afghanistan and brutally sacked cities and towns, especially if any loot from Elphinstone's army was found within the walls. To round things off and leave the Afghans with a permanent reminder of British vengeance, Pollock ordered the total destruction of the Kabul marketplace, where McNaughton's corpse had been displayed. After blowing the marketplace up with charges of gunpowder and allowing his troops to burn and plunder and rape throughout the Afghan capital, Pollock withdrew from Kabul on October 12, 1842. The Army of Retribution had fulfilled its purpose, but no one was fooled. Burning some towns and scattering some tribes could not disguise the depth of Britain's failure. The First Anglo-Afghan War was over. But there was one final loose end to tie up. Just as the last British soldier descended the Khyber Pass and left Afghanistan for good, they met a column heading in the opposite direction. At its head was Dost Muhammad Khan, quietly released from British captivity to reclaim his throne as long as he promised to keep the Russians out of the Khyber Pass. The very last British act of the First Anglo-Afghan War was to restore this ruler that they had started the war to remove. If they had just allied with him in the first place, without three years of war and disaster, the result would have been exactly the same. It was the last cruel irony in a war full of nothing but cruel ironies. The British had learned a very important lesson, one that both the Soviets and the Americans would have to learn the hard way. It is easy to get an army into Afghanistan. It is very hard, to get one out again. So, what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Let's take a look at what just happened then. The British invaded Afghanistan in 1839 to try and secure India from Russian invasion. By the time they invaded Afghanistan, the threat of Russian invasion had already receded. After that, there wasn't really a point to the expedition. And this lack of a concrete goal became the big problem. Was the goal to keep Shuja in power? Was it to cut expenses? What did you do when those priorities clashed? No one really knew. And the occupation was in the hands of William McNaughton, who didn't understand the Afghans, but he sure thought he did. And I think that was the biggest handicap the British had in Afghanistan. Arrogance. They didn't understand Afghanistan, and they didn't want to understand it. They thought that one size fit all, that the same policies that worked in India would work in Afghanistan. They failed to understand Afghan society or culture and how much they resented their foreign invaders. They neglected basic defensive measures because they assumed that no active resistance meant the war was over. They insulted Afghan masculinity by openly cavorting with their women. They marginalized Shuja when he understood how Afghan politics worked, and they failed to appreciate the impact their occupation had on the economy when they cut tribal subsidies in the name of efficiency. When the volcano did burst, when the crisis did come, the utter failure of Elphinstone's leadership and McNaughton's belief in his own cleverness helped turn a rough situation into an absolute disaster. As we saw from General Pollock and General Sale, there were plenty of good military leaders to go around in the British Army, but Elphinstone was not one of them. I don't know if someone else might have saved the army at Kabul, but they couldn't have done worse. The damage to the British military reputation was done. Everyone knew that the punitive expedition of 1842, the Army of Retribution, was just a fig leaf to cover up the humiliation the British public felt. The Sepoys who survived the retreat from Kabul, men who later returned to their regiments, remembered the ineptitude of the British retreat and the low priority that the British had set on their rescue. These men would be among the ringleaders of the Great Mutiny of 1857, a Sepoy rebellion that shook the British Empire to its foundations. Now, we could say a lot about British imperialism in general here. There's a strong argument that the British Empire ran on the engine of racism, chauvinism, and above all, titanic arrogance. Arrogance was baked into the British Empire's DNA. It was a heavily corrupt and arrogant institution. It did enormous damage to the countries it occupied, and it would be hard to see it as a net benefit for the people of the world but rarely did the British screw up as badly as they did in Afghanistan from 1839 to 1842. The British would return to Afghanistan in 1880, but that's a story maybe for another time. Maybe there'll be a sequel. I don't know. Return to the Graveyard of Empires, like it's a horror movie or something. Dos Muhammad would reunite and rule his fragmented, difficult country for the next 20-odd years, Exercising his usual brand of ruthless, intelligent autocracy. One of his first victims, oddly enough, may have been his own son, who had done so much to bring his father back to the throne. But Akbar Khan, given the title wazir for his victory, may have been too ambitious and dangerous to be left alive. In 1845, he died mysteriously at the age of 29, widely suspected to have been poisoned by his own father. After all, this is Afghanistan. There's always someone gunning for you if you're on top in Afghanistan. It had once been the crossroads of empires, the great trading artery of Eurasia. Then, for only a little while, it had become an empire itself. But after the first Anglo-Afghan war, the modern world moved on, and Afghanistan became something else. It became the fault line between empires, the place where the Great Game, and then the Cold War, and then the War on Terror would be waged, Wars for causes and continents that passed over the residents of Afghanistan time and again. Time and again, too, they have shown themselves to be unwilling to submit to anybody. The new invaders, both Soviet and American, made some of the same mistakes as the British had, and when they tried to avoid those mistakes, they made brand new mistakes. But they failed to realize that the root causes of all these mistakes was imperial arrogance. If you go to Gandamak and see the ruins of Elphinstone's army, which are still there, you will see the consequences of that arrogance. Afghanistan is their graveyard, and I think it does deserve its nickname, the Graveyard of Empires. Hey, thanks a bunch for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something, because the British sure as heck didn't. Now, I appreciate your support and feedback as I try to get this podcast off the ground. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you want to read about some more military history events or just check out a bunch of my ramblings, you can go to my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect, so if you've got advice, I'd love to hear it. And again, thank you so much for listening. Also, pack your bags, because next week we're going to Japan, and we're going to see the samurai face off against the might of the Mongol Empire. Hope to see you next week on Unknown Soldiers.